0: hey, grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Growing up, my dad's favorite show was Law & Order. Any Law & Order fans out there? Yeah, I remember every week vividly I was sitting on the couch. My dad be sitting in his recliner watching the show. I remember the theme music. Don, 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 no no don. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I remember the little sound effect they used to change scenes. Don, don. It's like real serious, you know? But every episode of Law & Order, it's pretty much the same thing, right? Somebody commits a crime, they investigate the said crime, they find out who did it, and they try to prosecute them, okay? And the interesting part to me was always the trial. You got one side, the, the prosecution, they're presenting all the evidence on the facts and why they think this guy did what they say he did. And then you got the defense. And their job is to obviously defend their client and say why he didn't do what they say he did. And I love the back and forth, the the arguments that go on. They say these things like, where were you on Thursday, uh, July 12th at 3.54 p.m. three years ago? Or they'd say, Your Honor, I object, or I rest my case. Maybe I should have practiced law. That was pretty good. I don't know. But I, I find it especially interesting whenever the person on trial is actually innocent. It's not a good thing, but it makes for good TV, You're sitting there, you're wondering how this man is going to defend himself and convince the jury that he's innocent. And in that situation, that person's entire life is riding on the ability to give a good defense. This morning, I want us to see that each of us has been called to give a good defense. Not for a crime we did or did not commit, but for our faith. And not in a courtroom drama, thank goodness, but rather in our day-to-day lives. As exiles living in a foreign culture, we need to be prepared to explain why we live and believe the way we do. And that was the Apostle Peter's message to the first century church. He wrote to exiles, to spiritual exiles, to help them live as citizens of heaven in a fallen world. And part of their living in exile was dealing with the suffering and antagonism from the world around them. How were they to manage this hostility and defend themselves? Should they fight back? Should they seek political power? Should they run away and hide? You remember we just finished a sermon last week where Peter told these believers they were not to return evil for evil. As people slandered them and mistreated them, they were to actually bless their enemies. So if they weren't supposed to fight back, then what were they supposed to do? Well, in today's passage, we're going to see that Peter instructed these exiles on how exactly to defend themselves, and this message will challenge us to do the same today. So let me invite you to look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter wrote this in verse 13, now, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Amen. You could be seated. As we walk through this text this morning, I want to give you three things we see here concerning an exile's defense. Here's the first. Number one, exiles are confident. Exiles are confident. You'll remember last week in verse 12, Peter quoted Psalm 34. He said, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. In other words, God takes care of his people, and that leads us into verse 13 today. Look at verse 13. He says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Here we get another hint that these believers were living under the threat of some kind of harm There was this fear of harm being leveled against them from the culture around them. And he says, hey, if you're zealous, if you're eager to do good, then who can harm you? If you're following Jesus, who can hurt you? And the answer to that question is no one. I had a pastor counsel me one time with this. He said, you are untouchable until God touches you. See, because of God's sovereignty, because of his control over all things, you are untouchable. You are invincible until God allows it. Now, this doesn't mean that I should go play hopscotch in the middle of I-35 in rush hour. But it does mean that God has his hands of protection on us. Let me share with you a few verses to show you this idea in the Bible. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Ephesians 1.11 says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Matthew 10.29-31, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Proverbs 16.9 says the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You are untouchable. Until God touches you, the very hairs on your head are numbered. If God cares for sparrows, for birds, then how much more does he care for you? So who can harm you? Who can hurt you? The answer is no one. But hang on a second, preacher man. Bad things happen to Christians every day. People have hurt me. People hurt people all the time. Jesus himself was murdered. How can you say this? Look, we know the Bible does not promise us protection from physical harm. If anything, it guarantees that we'll experience harm in this life. We've already seen in this letter in 1 Peter that these believers experience various kinds of suffering. But the point is that physical harm from people cannot harm who we are in Christ. People can attack us verbally, emotionally, physically. People can discredit us, belittle us, marginalize or marginalize us, and even kill us. But they cannot take away our eternal life in Christ. They cannot change one iota of our standing with Him. So Peter writes in verse fourteen. Look at that. He says, "But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed." Suffering is going to happen. <laughs> It's part of living in a fallen world, but here's the key. When we suffer for following Jesus, we will be blessed. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you understand that when you get to heaven... All the sufferings you have experienced in this life will be redeemed and healed. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As terrible and as horrible as this life may be, at times it cannot compare to what we'll experience when we see Jesus. So God's sovereignty means we are untouchable. No one can touch us unless God allows it. And if God allows us to face harm, it ends up as a blessing. It ends up working for our good and for his glory. So here's what Peter says at the end of verse 14. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In other words, don't be afraid of people. Even if someone hates you or wants to hurt you, even if an entire nation comes against us, we have no need to fear. Here's the thing, the fear of man is one of the most common and most crippling kinds of fear we can experience. And it's not just fearing people's physical harm, it's also fearing people's rejection or disapproval. It's worrying about what people think, who likes you, who doesn't like you, being overly concerned with your image and reputation. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man is a snare. When we fear people and worry about their opinion of us, it will cripple us. It will snare us. We will end up serving them instead of God. We will end up pleasing them instead of pleasing God. And we'll be so worried about what others think about us that we will not be able to defend our faith. I know this from my own life. The number one reason people do not share the gospel is because they fear people. So what's the alternative? It's confidence. We need confidence. Our defense has to start there. And this is different from self-confidence. I'm talking about God-confidence or what you might call godfidence. Kind of cheesy, but maybe we could trademark it, sell some shirts. Self-confidence says, hey, I can do this because I'm strong enough or I'm smart enough or I believe in myself. It says, hey, you can do anything you set your mind to if you just believe in yourself. It's this self-focused, self-centered kind of confidence. And self-confidence typically leads us in one of two directions. Either we find success and we become arrogant, or we fail and we become defeated. Either way, we turn in, we become focused on ourselves rather than God. What we need is a kind of confidence that comes from without That isn't based on our ability or how we feel or how we perform on a given day. We need a confidence that is unshakable and true. And this kind of confidence comes only from God. God confidence is a deep trust in who God is and what he can do. It's not puffed up or arrogant because God confidence means I'm completely dependent on him. I don't get the credit. It's Christ in me. And God confidence is not fearful or passive because it means, again, I'm completely dependent on him. I don't have to be afraid. He's sustaining me. And for me, my God confidence comes from the sovereignty of God. We just sang a song that I love. And knowing that God is sovereign gives me great confidence because that means he's in control. He is actively working in all things, in all situations for his glory and my good. So, no matter the situation I might find myself in, whether I face hostility from someone who disagrees with my faith, or if I'm trying to work up the nerve to share the gospel with someone, I don't rest in my ability to be smart enough or cool enough or to say all the right words or to have all the answers. I rest in the fact that God's got me. I am untouchable until He touches me. So, in our defense, exiles are confident. And here's the second thing we learn. Number two, exiles are prepared. Look with me again at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. These are the verses that everyone knows, especially if you grew up in church. Maybe you memorized these as a kid. He says, in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's important to know that the Bible speaks differently about the heart than the way we typically think of it. In the Bible, the heart is the center of who we are. It's the part of us where our thoughts, feelings, and attitudes live. Everything that comes out of us comes from our heart. So what we need to do is not just think of Jesus as holy, but that word holy means set apart. We need to actually set Jesus apart in our lives as Lord. I mean, how can we defend what we believe and share our faith if we do not first regard Jesus as the Lord of our lives? It's like when I give my kids food that's just been cooked. Before I give it to them, I will taste it to see if it's cooled off enough so that it won't burn them. And once I've tasted the food and I say, okay, that's good, then I will share it with them the same way, I think one of the reasons we as Christians either get angry when people come against our faith or we shrink back in fear is because we've not tasted the food for ourselves. We're not prepared to give a defense because we do not fully believe it. How can we tell others to follow Jesus if we're not following him ourselves? How can we tell others to take up their cross if we're not willing to do the same? How can we call others to repent and turn from their sin when we're still living in ours? We have to taste the food for ourselves first. Then we can share it with others. And this starts with declaring Jesus as Lord of your life. Have you done that? Have you made that decision before? I'm not asking if you call yourself a Christian or if you grew up in church or if you're a good person I'm asking, have you ever come to a point in your life where you said, God, I give up, I give you my life, I invite Jesus to be my Lord? If you have not done that, then I say this with sadness, you do not know him. Because there is only one response to knowing Jesus and that's bowing down to him as Lord. So if you've not made that decision before, then I invite you today to pray. And give your life to Christ. You don't have to clean up first. You don't have to get your act together. All you have to do is surrender. Once you do that, then you can move to the next part. It says, always being prepared to make a defense. That word defense, we know is the key here. And I don't normally try to wow you with Greek words. But in the original language of the New Testament, this is the Greek word apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics, which is the, the defense of the faith. And notice he says, we we need to be prepared to give this defense to anyone who asks you. The idea is at any time, in any place, someone could ask you what you believe and why you believe it. And we need to be prepared to give an answer. So this isn't going out on the offensive, looking to start an argument with someone. It's just not getting into an internet debate and owning people on Facebook, okay? This is someone coming to you and asking you. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be active and going out and sharing the gospel. Of course, we know we should do that. The Bible talks about that. But the point here is defense. It's answering someone's question. And as Peter has stated before, the idea is that these questions come to you because of the way you live. As followers of Jesus, when we live differently from the world, people should take notice, and they may ask you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Notice that word hope. Peter's used that word several times in this letter. If we place our hope in Jesus and we live a hope filled life and we exuberate hope throughout our day, that will become evident to others and it may even spark a conversation. We have an opportunity to share. So let me ask you Are you prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you? Are you prepared? I'm not saying we all need to be skilled apologists. I, I enjoy learning about apologetics, and, and I think that can be a valuable ministry to the church. In fact, let me encourage you, if, if you enjoy studying the more philosophical and intellectual arguments for Christianity, like proof for the existence of God and evidence of the resurrection or creation, if you've got a knack for that, by all means, study, learn, and help the rest of us, okay? Okay? But Peter is not saying here we all need to be academics or brainiacs. Really what we need, I think, is just three things. I believe there are three things we all need to know if we want to be prepared to defend our faith. Number one, you need to know your testimony. Why do you follow Jesus and how did you become his follower? Could you sit down with someone and in just a few minutes share your testimony? If you've never done that, it's really simple. There are three parts to every testimony. There's your life before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and your life after Jesus. I would encourage you, if you've never done that, take some time, write it out, read it over, practice it so you can be prepared. So number one, know your testimony. And number two, you need to know the basic facts of the gospel. We need to be able to explain very simply what sin is, why Jesus died on the cross, why he rose from the dead, and what we need to do about it. And there are a lot of good ways to share the gospel. I'm going to show you one at the end of the message. But what we need is just a simple, basic way to tell people what Jesus has done for them. And number three, the last thing I think you need to be prepared is just to memorize a few verses of Scripture. Okay, Scripture memory is not just for kids in Awana, okay? Ones that I always keep tucked away in my mind are Romans 6.23. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and Old Faithful John 3, 16. Okay, if you can just memorize a few simple verses of the Bible like those, then you're going to be prepared to adequately defend your faith because here's the thing. The Word of God is living and active. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. So know your testimony. Know the basic facts of the gospel. Know a few Bible verses by heart. Then you will be prepared to give a defense and share your faith when that opportunity comes. But don't miss this last part. Did you see it? He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Can I say that a little louder for you? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. For some reason. In my experience, the people who get most excited about apologetics and defending the faith tend to be aggressive, argumentative, and just plain rude. Friends, that's terrible. Defending the faith is never an excuse to be disrespectful or pushy with someone. There is a loving way to engage people. There's a way to share what you believe with conviction, but with gentleness. There's a way to disagree with people and yet respect them. And we know that's the most persuasive kind of person. It's not the jerk online or the guy with the megaphone on the street. It's the person who's a good listener, who's kind, who's clear and simple, who who loves us and cares for us. Those are the people who tend to persuade us. I was reminded of that recently. I went and bought some new furniture. For our living room and you know sometimes you get in a sales situation where the sales guy is like really kind of pushy and and uh like you can tell he's just trying to make a buck off you is that the guy that you want to buy stuff from no but the guy who sold me furniture man he was not like that he was helpful he was patient his attitude made me want to buy some furniture so guess what i did So yeah, we're convictional. We're able to defend our faith. We know our stuff, but we do so with gentleness and respect. That's how exiles are prepared. Here's the third and last thing we learn about an exile's defense. Number three, exiles are blameless. Look again at verses 16 and 17. He says, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Three times in this verse, we see the word good. That's the key. A major part of our defense is our lifestyle of godliness. But the concern, whenever we hear that we should be good, is that we might fall into legalism again. Remember, this verse is in the context of what Peter's already said about being born again by God's mercy. Our goodness does not earn our place or standing with God. You cannot be good enough to be earned, uh, to earn God's salvation. In fact, our goodness really isn't ours. Rather, anything good in me comes from Jesus saving me and the Holy Spirit indwelling me. So when I say we need to be good, this is not you in your own strength trying really hard to follow the rules. No, this is you becoming more like Jesus through faith. We do follow the rules and commands of Christ, but we do so from our salvation, not for our salvation. And this is something Peter said all along. He said, hey, if you've been saved by Jesus, then you're going to live like Jesus. And in this verse, that means first off, you're going to have a good conscience doesn't mean you won't ever sin or feel guilty when you do. It just means that when you do sin, you're going to deal with it through confession to God and repentance. And secondly, he says it's good behavior. Again, that does not mean we are perfect. If it did, I would be disqualified. But it does mean we strive to honor God with our lives so that when we suffer, we suffer for doing good and not evil. Sometimes we suffer for doing evil. We suffer because we were unkind or unloving or selfish. That's not the kind of suffering that God commends. We want to make sure we suffer for being like Jesus, not being a jerk. And this is especially important when we're giving a defense of our faith because we don't want our sinful flesh to distract from the gospel. If people are going to reject the message of Jesus, we want to make sure it's Jesus they're rejecting and not us. I've met a lot of people who don't like Christianity because of their interaction with Christians. Christians have done some terrible things throughout history. Christians still today do terrible things. So it's important, if we're going to have a gospel witness, it's got to be consistent with our gospel message. In our defense, exiles are confident, confident, prepared and blameless.